Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, let's go right to the phones. And joining us, as he does every week at this time, Nate Zielinski. Good morning, Nate. How are you today, Terry? You know what? It's a beautiful day. I am doing great, and I'm sure we'll hear where you're at probably somewhere at 15,000 feet. I guess you can't get that high in Colorado. But anyway, but before I know you want to talk hunting, but before we get to it, you kind of were evasive last night. Your wife answered. So the question of the day we're asking people, and they can text their answer to 303-713-1043. The question of the day is, what do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? Oh, I'm absolutely the guy that dwells on the ones that get away. So I'm 100% the fish that I lost. Um, And I did reply. I just said I crossed it over more to my other passion, which I love equally to fishing and hunting. Uh, And that one are the ones that I lose sleep over. And that's the animals that got away that, you know, so close to getting the shot off and, uh, and they slip away forever. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely more the, the ones that got away than the ones that, uh, the ones that you landed for sure. I'm going to reveal my answer at the end of the show, but we want the people's answers to keep coming in because this is fun. I think we'll try to do a question of the the week or whatever, once a month or whatever, we'll do it, question of the day. And uh, I, we're getting a great response, so I think it's something we'll do. But let's talk hunting. We are just virtually, it started our archery, right? Uh, so in, in regards to what's going on right now, we have uh, we have some bighorn sheep seasons taking place, and then tomorrow morning is the archery opener for pronghorn, uh, which is a very highly anticipated day uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one. I mean, hunting pronghorn, it's a lot of fun. They're such a unique animal. Uh, And with that, it's awesome that in the archery season, there are so many readily available tags. There's a lot of tags uh, that you can purchase that are over-the-counter tags uh, for kind of all over. We have mountain zones that have available hunting units for over-the-counter tags, uh, as well as a lot of plains units for over-the-counter tags. So very readily available tags. It's early before the all the, you know, the combined elk and deer season starts. So it's nice to do that. So people that, uh, you know, that are really, you know, maybe even more into the deer and elk hunting, it gets you out in the field. So regardless, it's a very anticipated day. Tomorrow's the opener. Uh, and I can tell you right now that the hot sun that we're getting today, uh, burning off that, that cloud cover to really get that bright sun beaming down is actually very anticipated uh, by a lot of hunters and a very appreciated simply for the fact that a mainstay for being a successful pronghorn hunt uh, early in the season, hunting over a water hole is a very key concept. Um, you know, we do a lot of decoying. We do a lot of spot and stock. We do flagging. We sent by fences. There's a lot of techniques for hunting these animals, but really the the true ultimate most successful way is sitting on a water hole. And this year we've had more rain than normal, uh, making the water holes a little tougher. But having this bright, hot sun that we're having right now uh, is going to make those animals drink more often, frequently, and hold patterns to that drinking. Um, So we have rain coming next Wednesday, but we're going to have a good couple days uh, of hot sun, and that's only going to help those guys that 
do have active uh, water holes and, and have animals hitting water holes on a daily basis. So exciting to see that and just excited to get out there in the morning uh, and do so. I actually have a rifle tag this year, so I will not be bow in hand tomorrow, uh, but I will be keeping up with hunters throughout the, the state, both mountains and plains, uh, kind of watching things. I spent time on both the plains and the mountains this week, uh, kind of checking up on animals and, and how that rut activity is going. Um, so, so a lot going on. I will just say with the report of that um on the eastern plains we went out east um i had less activity of bucks chasing other bucks off uh bucks joining does i I did have a lot less activity um there i'd say it's probably going to be a solid week before we really see uh any sort of chasing and really active uh signs of very early early rut um as opposed to the mountain zones I saw the, the bucks starting to chase around a little bit. Again, by no means are they breeding. By no means is it the rut. Um, but, but they definitely are uh, chasing each other around a little bit. So you're definitely seeing some more aggressive animals up in the hills. Obviously, colder temperatures help that. So I do think that you know over the course of the next week of opener, I think you might have some, some available options to decoy these animals in the high country or the higher units, I should say. Uh, as opposed to the planes. I think the planes are going to be a little bit behind schedule on that. Uh, but, but time will tell. I'd, I'd say to all the pronghorn hunters out there, I talked about this during our live feed with Colorado Parks and Wildlife this week, with pronghorn, especially the archery equipment, you have to really be ready and adaptive to, to do anything, whether that is sit on water for a week straight, um, you know, long sits all day, you know, they're kind of burning up in the blind. That's an option. You know, being able to have a decoy in your truck and know how to use it, that's an option. Knowing where these pronghorn are crossing fences to where you can hunt a fence crossing, that is an awesome way to, to get close and create success. Know where those are. Um, you know, we talk about flagging to where you take advantage of their curiosity, uh, just as well as a general spot and stock. Make sure you have everything ready to go. So right now today, you have a day to plan. Make sure that you're adapted to have all of those techniques under understand them all, have education, do your scouting today, watch them all day today to where you say, hey, I know they drink at this time. I know they cross this fence at this time. Uh, I know my wind is doing this. Get out there today while I listen to the show or after the show. Uh, do your final scouting because tomorrow is a very big day, and we just hope all the hunters have, uh, have success, make good decisions. Uh, and, again, I think so many people push um, a lot of opportunities with pronghorn. They, you know, they, they, they push the limits on, on all aspects. Um, buy your time. You know, if you have a pronghorn in the area, instead of boogering them up and blowing them out, um, you know, sit on them. Wait until the time is right. And most importantly, um, when you are out in the flat ground, it, it is easy to misjudge your range and or push your capabilities with archery equipment. Know your limits. Um, and I am saying this from a hunter who knows exactly what you're talking about. I can't tell you how many times where I say, you know, such and such yardage is going to be my max. And you have that big buck standing there 10 yards outside of your comfortable range. And, you know, there's no trees. There's no shrubs. It seems like such an easy shot. And hunters push their limits. I have done it myself. So I'm speaking to you, uh, you know, as words of wisdom. Try not to do that. We owe these animals respect. This is not going to be a, a fling fest. Um, try to get out there, uh, make the ultimate shot, uh, and, and, again, hopefully create that success. Nate, I have a question for you. And we talk about water. We talked about water when we were talking dove hunting earlier. We, we're going to talk about water as we get into elk and deer. We, we talk about water. All, all animals need water. What's the biggest mistake, pronghorn in particular, since that's what we're talking about, 
people make in trying to identify what's a good water hole? You know, I'd say a lot comes to it. I mean, on a year like this, you're going to have a lot of water holes that will be active. So these proghorn, you know, in some years, you know, they'll walk two, three miles to a water hole, and that's their only source. As opposed to this year, a lot of ditches, a lot of areas, there's there's water kind of everywhere. So, number one, trying to find the most active hole to where you try to find ones that they like more than others. It's not just a grazing water hole. When we say that, it's just, you know, when they happen to walk by it, they drink out of it. You want a destination water hole to where on a daily basis, you hope they come to that same water hole and it's their main source for water. So being on an active hole is, is number one priority. Focus, scout, check every water in the area, find the one with the most tracks, try to set trail cameras up, know where they're coming from. Um, so active water is your number one step. Number two, uh, the, probably the biggest mistake I see made is people setting up blinds uh, and number one, not having good blinds. You, when they come to a water hole, they are looking around. They are always nervous. All animals approach water with a little bit of high intensity. Um, so you want to make sure that they do not see you in that water hole. They don't hear you. They don't smell you. Uh, they don't see you drawing your bow back. So great concealment. Have a better blind. Close up all the windows other than the windows facing that water hole. So great concealment, number one. Again, so many people have too open of a blind or they try to sit by a you know a pile of sagebrush. You have to be concealed in that water hole because they, when they approach, uh, they are a little bit more nervy. So keep that in mind. Uh, with those same concepts of, of how you set up your blind or how you sit on that water hole, I see so many hunters that put their blind too close to the water. Uh, we talk about this in all aspects of a tree stand, a blind, all that. Know your shooting distance. I can talk to any hunter out there, and you say, what is your, you know, what's your maximum yardage? And everybody has a comfort zone. Me, personally, I can shoot a long range with a bow. Uh, you know, where I'd say my very comfort level is 60 yards, but where I am absolutely flawless is that 40, 50. So when I come to a water hole, I set myself up 30, 40 yards out. Uh, I don't want to extend my distance to its maximum, but I definitely do not want to be 5, 10 yards off the water hole. Anytime you're that close, there's more options for the penguins to see you, hear you, smell you, uh, get caught drawing your bow back with that slight movement, um, things like that. So keep a little distance. Again, I'm not saying go to your maximum yardage, but go out a little bit. Don't be sitting right on that water. That's probably the biggest mistake I've seen made is, is, is hunters put their blinds right up on it. Um, and a lot of times if you haven't accustomed these pronghorn to your blind, um, you know, a lot of guys will throw their blind up open in day. Those pronghorn haven't seen that before and will throw them off. So try to get them used to the blind, whether you put it up and take it down, uh, leave it up. Again, you know, check your local regulations on that. But, but let them get used to that blind. That's another major step uh, with that. They want to be used to it. So it's just a normal part of coming to that water hole. They see that. And those are the few tips that I think will really help people. Um, and then kind of the last thing with that, don't make them walk by your blind as they approach the water hole. So try to do your research, even if it's just walk up to the water hole in the dark and, and look where the tracks are coming from. It's pretty easy to see where they come and go from, but you definitely want your, your blind on the opposing side. So if they're walking to your water hole from the north, um, you know, as long as your wind allows, you want to be on the south. But don't make them walk right next to your blind as they approach. Again, it's going to throw them off having to walk by it. Uh, greater chance to smell you, see you, hear you, uh, all that kind of stuff. So make it as easy on them to approach uh, w without detecting you, and that's going to be the greatest results for success. You only got a couple minutes left, Nate. What's going on with deer and elk? So, again, we're super excited. September 2nd is coming fast. 
Uh, that's going to be the opener for archery. Uh, deer and elk are, are elk actually are in that process right now as we speak. I saw a bull rubbing off velvet early this morning. Um, we are in that phase to where they are starting to lose the velvet. We love that. That's the testosterone kicking in. That's basically the sign that we are there. Uh, so very excited about that. So the velvet's coming off. Some bulls have lost it. Some bulls are just starting to lose it. Uh, but but in that process, it's just those signs. Uh, high country has been having some very colder nights. I mean, I've even seen teens uh, up in the extreme high country, so we love seeing that. Uh, obviously, I mean, I actually heard a couple of beagles the other day, but by no means are we at a calling state. But again, the, the process is starting. So where the animals are now, 100% is where they're going to be. Uh, during that opening day, that September 2nd. So if you're not on animals, you need to be on animals. And that's both elk, deer, bears, uh, all the big game species. So uh, if you have not found them thinking as it gets later towards fall, they'll show up. That is not the case. Where they are right now is where they're going to be. Don't anticipate any mass migrations uh, really until mid-September. So if that in mind, get out there, scout hard. Uh, We are definitely seeing these animals partaking in activity in the low light periods of the day. So I talked to hunters that were out scouting the other day. and I'm like, oh, when would you get out there? like, oh, we probably got back in the woods by about 8 o'clock. Uh, you know, and they weren't successful finding any things, and they were concerned about it. Uh, I mean, I've seen bulls bed down as early as 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. That's your real mature animals. I've had a few other animals stay out till you know, mid-morning, but I would definitely say right now you need to be scouting as hard as you're going to hunt. So we say this all the time, and, and a lot of times it just doesn't get through to hunters. Um, you know, if, if you have to, a three-, four-mile hike in, um, you know, you need to be in the position where you think your animals are at first light or earlier, watching them just as it gets light uh, in anticipation that some of these animals might bed down extremely early in these hot temps. So same thing in the evening. Uh, I mean, some of these animals are not getting out of their beds to where they're visible to me as a hunter literally until the last half hour of light. Um, it's one of those things, you know, scout early, scout as if you're hunting. So in the afternoons, I am staying in the woods until it's pitch black and then hiking out. Uh, so you need to scout as hard as your hunt, anticipation of low light periods being best. So kind of keep that in mind. That's huge. As far as the deer, same thing. They are in their ritual patterns. If I'm hunting high country, I'm not worried about water. I am literally trying to find the animals from a long ways anticipating hunting them out of their bedding areas in the tree line and up type situations. If I'm hunting timber areas for deer, I'm putting a major focus on water holes. And we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but on the, on the mule deer hunting, uh, I'm a major focus on water holes. If I'm hunting very tree type areas, uh, again, just the greatest opportunity to create a repeatable pattern to create that success. 30 seconds. If, if you were going to go fishing in the next couple of days, where would you go? I'll tell you what, uh, some of the staff at Tightline is on some of the best walleye fishing I've seen. Uh, Chatfield is on a phenomenon right now. Our water dropped. Uh, I think all the stars and moon and everything that you could believe in aligned at Chatfield. I have seen more 30-inch fish uh, from both ourselves and just other anglers that I know uh, within the last two weeks at Chatfield than I saw all spring, probably all fall, uh, and really in the last long period uh, combined. So there's a big fish bite going at Chatfield, reaction baits, uh, lipless crankbaits, 
jerk baits, uh, blade baits, high intensity, high action baits. Uh, so Chatfield, huge walleyes are going, and the pike bite continues to be as solid as anything I've seen. Uh, so it's a hard tear, but big walleyes and big pike are definitely on the menu right now here in Colorado. All right, all right my friend, we are way out of time, but if they want to get more information to get a hold of you, it's Tightline Outdoors on social media, tightlineoutdoors.com. Nate, thank That's you so it. much. Great information as always. Thank you so much, sir. You bet. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to still talk fishing. We're going to talk uh, maybe a technique that you haven't thought about using if you want to start easing into fly fishing. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack Outdoor Gear. Speaking of Jack's Outdoor Gear, let's go to the East Loveland store. And joining us from their fishing department is J.R. Stromat. Good morning, J.R. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing well. And we're going to talk about a way you can kind of ease into fly fishing that can really add to people's repertoire. But before we do that, we're having our question of the day um, this uh, today. And what it is, the listeners can text in to 303-713-1043. But we're taking a toll, a, a poll, and we're going to tally it at the end of the show. And the question is, what do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? For me? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's probably more the fish that I, I landed and looked at, you know, the beautiful fish. Those are the ones I like the best. All right, so we got you down as landed. And we're going to give you a tally on this, folks, at the end. But text in your response. We've been getting a lot of great messages, even pictures. This has been really a lot of fun. Now, what I was referring to earlier, you know, a lot of people, they do bait fishing or they'll do some lures and things. And they think about they want to try fly fishing, but they're not sure they want to get into learning to fly fish to cast yet or to invest in the equipment. But you have a technique you use quite a bit that you can kind of ease into fly fishing, don't you? Yes, I do. I, I really like uh, using what we call the bubble and fly. I like uh, fishing with uh, uh, that kind of equipment. It's easy to use and very effective. Now let's go through what you need. Do I need any special? If I say I'm a spinning fisherman, I have either a spin cast push button or a traditional spinning rod. Can I fish with any of those? Yeah, it doesn't matter. As long as it's a monofilament rigged up rig uh, with a either a spin cast reel or an open face spinning reel, uh, either one will work fine. Main thing is is they need to be loaded well with either something six pound test line or lighter, four or six pound test. Uh, you can use regular mono. I prefer fluorocarbon, but you know the the mono works fine. And the reason for the smaller line is because flies tend to be small. It's hard to tie them on to heavy line, and they lose some of their action. They're not as natural looking if you put too big a line on them. Now, if you have a, a spinning reel that has braided line on it or has maybe 8 or 10-pound test, you could put, using a, like a uni to uni knot, you could put a leader on it, right, and use that? Sure. That works fine. You know, you, the way you rig up the bu bubble I prefer right now for teaching new people especially is called an adjust -a bubble so it's very simple to use it's basically a one one uh, uh, setup motion which you put the line through a small hole that goes in one side comes out the other and there's a rubber core inside that you twist and lock the line into place then you're done you don't have to do anything else there's nothing else you need to tie on and then you tie your fly on the other end or your bait or your lure and and you're ready to go 
And on now, those, the way they're built, uh, they're very simple in that you can, uh, uh, if you need a little more weight, you just pull the plug a little bit and hold it underwater, and it'll, it'll put water in it and give you more weight to give you a little longer cast. Now, is there any particular flies you like to fish for maybe for beginners with a bubble? Or I think you can really fish just about any of them. Yeah, I don't think the fly pattern is quite as critical in some cases for especially for bubble and fly fishing. Most of it is you're fishing over the local fish or the smaller ponds and, and uh, even the larger reservoirs around here. The uh, uh, patterns are sometimes really important, but most of the time a standard uh, your standard fly patterns like uh, a hornberg or that kind of a fly or a woolly worm, woolly bugger, uh, a hare's ear nymph or zug bugs real good when the um, damsel flies are hatching out. Uh, but we like another one called a pistol peat. The pistol peat is made in Pueblo, Colorado, and it's uh, a fly with a little small spinner propeller on the front of it. So you get both things. You get the attraction and you get the sound that comes off the fly, which is really important, as you know. And the other thing is and when you're retrieving these flies, you don't want to do it in a steady retrieve. You want to just do a little bit of an erratic retrieve where you're pausing slightly and or speed up a little bit and give it a little action. I always like to think of, the, of it like a, playing with a cat with a piece of string or something like that where you're kind of enticing that cat to grab it while you're trying to do that with the fish too. Now, that's with the pistol peat. And, of course, with stock trout, those are really great on some of our lower lakes especially, and they're going to start stocking our Front Range lakes very soon here again, and that'll be a great presentation. Now, what if I want to go up, you know, right now you could go up the lakes like Flatiron or Pinewood, and you mentioned those to me when we were talking offline, but there's also something going on right now that I love to fish, and I do it both with a fly rod and a fly in a bubble, and that's either a dry dropper or a hopper dropper, and boy, we have a lot of grasshoppers this year. I can't help but think that would be extremely effective. It really is. And hopper patterns, your terrestrial, called terrestrial patterns, your hoppers, your ants, and things like that. And a dropper hopper on that works really well. You can drop a little, uh, like if you're going to Pinewood, I would drop a small black midge type off the fly, something like that. There's always those active up there. Flat iron is uh, pretty much anything. They About three weeks ago, they stocked 8,500 trout in flat iron, so there's plenty of fish in there. Although I did get some reports, it slowed down just a little bit, but it still was real active early in the morning and late in the evening. All right. By the way, we got a text from Josh and Jamie to tell you hi. Oh, thank you. <laughs> just say, so you got fan, you got fans already. But well, um, I've, I've been here. I've been here at Jack's for 13 years, so I kind of have a pretty good idea of what's going on around the area. And uh, you know, you can also use these things. If you're good, if you're on the bigger rivers, you can use a bubble and a fly there, too. It's just a little different technique. And that's something that I'd, you know, welcome people to come by and talk to me here at Jackson or one of our other fishing pros and and uh, get you some good information on some of that places to go. But but overall, you know, I, I know that most people, if they learn to cast, uh, they'll do better by using something like this. It'll keep them active. They'll develop that muscle memory needed to to perfect your cast. Uh, I like to do in the technique called fan fan casting, I call it, where you look at your hand. If you lay your hand flat and spread your fingers out, you'll see that there's a, you start casting, say, to your thumb, 
and then your index finger, your middle finger, your ring finger, and then your baby finger. Cast in that pattern and walk because those trout are constantly moving. They don't they don't sit still. So if you're sitting in one spot, you're limiting your access. You can do it from one spot, but by fan casting, you get that. You'll start to understand that those fish are a lot closer to shore than you think a lot of times. Well, I think that's one of the greatest tips. That's a great place to end it because, you know, everybody on a boat tries to cast towards shore, and everybody on shore tries to cast as far out in the lake or river as they can. And a lot of times you're right. The fish are awfully close to shore, and there's a reason why. There's food there. There's cover. So we've got we've to let you go here, Jr. but tell people how they find your store. Well, we're right at the corner of uh, uh, Redwood and uh, Highway 34 or Eisenhower. We're right behind Discount Tire, right across from Sands. And we'll be happy to have anybody come in. We'll give them good service and take care of them, any of their fishing needs. All right, my friend. We'll have you on back again soon. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jerry. Bye-bye. You bet. J.R. Uh, Stromat from the East Loveland store. You know, they have two stores in Loveland. One is... One is the uh, original Loveland store that's closer to I-25 to I- if you're coming in on 34, and the other ones is you're going out of town. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we're going to ask Chad Lachance whether his memory of a fish is landed or lost, and he's going to talk about catching suspended fish on Terry Wicksham Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wicksham Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Let's go to the phones. And joining us is Chad Lachance. Chad, are you there, my friend? Yes, sir. Good morning, Terry. Well, we've got a text. We've got a special request. People want an update on Ranger Danger. Oh, yeah, he's fine. Um, Would I appreciate everyone thinking about it. But, yeah, he got bit on the foot by a rattlesnake, for people that aren't familiar. And, uh, you know, my credit card may take longer to heal than the dog. But, unfortunately, he's uh, second time he's been bit. But he's fine, and I appreciate all the good thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that was we got that text just before you came on. Hey, before we get into I know you want to talk about suspended fish, and I love this topic because – it affects fishing so much, both in their location and the ability to catch them and how you approach them. But right now, as you know, and I texted you about this, we're doing the question of the day. And we want people to text in, too, at 303-713-1043 and give us their their answer to this. We're doing a little poll. We may make this a once-a-month regular feature, the question of the day. And we also may turn it into a contest. But right now, it's for fun. The question of the day is, what do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? Oh, easy one for me, Terry. Without question, it's fish I lost because a fish that I landed is confirmation of, of my of something I know or something like that. But a fish I lost, almost invariably, is, there's a lesson in there somewhere. And so I tend to think about it longer. So they stick in my memory. And so when I was thinking about it last night, I was thinking back through, you know, fish that stick in my brain uh, over the years. And there's been lots of them. But uh, the highest percent of them are fish that beat me, typically. Fish that, that they beat me at their game. You know, a tarpon that... that got around a pole or, you know, that jumped and, and broke me off or something like that. But those are the ones that stick with me. The ones that I landed, I figure I won that game. It's confirmation of what I already know, and uh, and I move on to the next one. So, for me, it's the fish I lost. I was texting with Jimmy Houston this morning, and we were going back and forth, and I told him I don't remember ever losing a small fish. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the truth for sure. You know, I was thinking about specific fish, and there's a bunch of them that stick in my brain. But some of them are tarpon, some are, are bass. I boat flipped in a tournament. You know, you learn the lesson. Don't boat flip that fish. You know, grab him, net him, whatever stuff like that. But they're all hard lessons, and and uh, and there's no, there's certain finality of losing them. You know, you don't get a second chance. That's right. All right, let's talk suspended fish. You know, in our reservoirs right now, tends to be water dropping pulls fish away from the shore, our bait fish are out more. All these factors tend to, when you say suspended, first tell people what you mean by going after suspended fish. Well, suspended fish are fish that are not on the surface and not on the bottom. So they're somewhere in the middle of the water column. And that sounds simple until you think about western reservoirs and how deep they might be. So a good example right now is we've got both bass and walleyes here at Horsetooth Reservoir that are anywhere between 5 and 15 feet below the surface over somewhere between 60 and 160 feet of water. So they're just literally in, in Never Never Land out in the middle of the water column, and that makes them very difficult to target. Uh, they're not sitting on something like we think of ambush feeders sitting on. Uh, and as you know, depth control becomes the issue. But it doesn't matter if we're talking about here at Horsetooth or Boyd Lake. You might see white bass doing the same thing, moving around in the middle of the water column, and uh, you know they'll come to the surface at a point, but then they don't, and then you can't find them again. Uh, same thing down at Pueblo. It doesn't really matter what reservoir we're talking about. Like you said, the bait fish have bloomed. There's lots of them out in the open water, and the fish will follow them out there. And, you know, those, there's a couple things that go on to make fish suspend. One is these fish that are out there, and they're following the bait, and they're even though they're suspended, a lot of times they're not very deep, and it's almost impossible sometimes to locate them on your electronics. And then there's fish that just move off of the structure. People think they move down or they move up, but sometimes they just move out parallel. Those sometimes you can find, but in both cases, you're absolutely right. How do you present a lure to them? How do you approach those situations, Chad? Well, for me, it's a, it's a straight-up depth control game. And the ones that you reference where they just pull off of a piece of structure and hang there, that's going on very commonly even with just fishing pressure here at this point. So, um you know, you, you can go over a point with your graph and look and see a bunch of fish on it. And as soon as they realize you're there, they just scatter off of it and they suspend out away from it a little bit because they've seen so much fishing pressure. But uh, the ones out in the open water column are typically feeding more and they're a little bit more approachable. For me, um, a lot of times it becomes a countdown situation. So like right now, a flutter spoon, and I'm not talking about a full jigging spoon that I'm fishing straight under my boat. The fish are too high in the water column for that. So I'm doing a flutter spoon. It's got a bigger profile, but doesn't weigh anymore so it sinks a lot less and flutters a lot more uh so i'll make long throws with that and i will count it down a certain amount so uh, maybe i'll count it down for five seconds or ten seconds and try to duplicate that and then i'll rip it up and then let it settle for another four or five seconds and rip it up and you know take up some slack and then just keep doing that and try to work maybe a five foot you know chunk of the water column all the way back to the boat that's a real common one for me Another one, uh, and typically I do that with a Johnson Sprite, something like a half-ounce Johnson Sprite, which works really well as a shad imitator, or just a chrome spoon. Another thing that I'll do sometimes this time of year is a drop shot bait. So there, uh, it's, it's more of I'll put a small swim bait of some sort on the drop shot, throw it out, and then let it pendulum to me. And there again, you're controlling your depth by keeping the line tight and let the bait swing to you. Uh, but the, the, 
the key there is not letting it get under your fish. As you know, you don't want to be under the fish because all the fish we're talking about are conditioned to feed up. Unless they're sitting on the bottom and feeding on the bottom itself, they're conditioned to feed above themselves. They're built for that. That's how they're going to notice your lure. So um, a small swim bait, either on a drop shot or on just a jig head, that you count down to a certain depth and then retrieve it and then hold the rod tip high and retrieve it. Trying to hold that depth range can be really good. Uh, as well for controlling fish. And if you're a bait guy, a really good thing to use, particularly if it's breezy, would be a slip bobber, and at which point I might set my slip bobber depth at, you know, like I said, 5 to 12 or 15 feet, for instance, here at Horsetooth, uh, and then put a live bait under it of some sort if you're a live bait guy. And that's a really good way to control your depth, and that will work very well. Uh, but you got to know you're around fish because you're not covering any water at that point. So in that situation, you need to know that you're around fish or, or you're just hoping fish are going to come to you as opposed to the more active techniques like the spoon or the swim bait. And then the last one now, to talk about covering water is going to be the trolling bite, right? At which point, in my opinion, suspended fish are most easily targeted if you have room by being a good troller. And uh, because you have good depth control, your bait stays in the strike zone all the time. And a good troller is really in his prime when there's a lot of suspended fish. No, I think you're absolutely right because, as I stated earlier when we started this out, uh, those fish that are suspended only like 5, 10 feet down are extremely difficult to locate on your electronics. Now, with some of the side imaging things, it's a little better, but covering water sometimes is the only way you can find them. So, you know, you don't want to be throwing that slip bobber, like you said, unless you know fish are located there and you've got them potted up somewhere. How do you go about isolating the areas? Even, you know, horse tooth's a big reservoir. Are you able to find some of these on your electronics? Do you look for the bait? Do you, are the new technologies allowing you to see some of the fish? How do you find them? Yes, sir. It's all of the above. I am, it's for sure a bait centric thing first of all so and the bait is typically easy to find on the graph either with side imaging or a live scope or depending on what you have for a graph in your boat the, the bait can, is your biggest key what i look for is 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 fish with or above the bait typically here the bait is going to be under the fish unless you're talking about evening time the fish will stay higher in the column and when the bait comes up in the evening is when the fish will intercept them but a lot of them i'm finding on my graph uh, for instance, I'll, I'll go through an area, look at it really close with the graph, and then turn back around and fish it because they are not going to stay under your boat. When they're high in the column and not relating to anything uh, piece of structure-wise, they're not going to stay under your boat at all. So if, even if you spot them on your graph, they're not going to stay there. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now, I will throw out one little trick. If it's very calm, and I mean very calm, like glass calm, you can park your boat in one spot and the opposite will happen. If you just sit there and don't do anything, you'll get fish that will pull under your boat because you have effectively become the shade. But that's a very specialized situation. For the most part, I'm looking for them and then coming back to fish. Uh, another possibility in that scenario is just getting around prime pieces of structure and then fishing around it. So I might park the boat right on top of it and then make long throws all the way around it. I'm not fishing the structure itself. I just know that, hey, fish like this hump or they like this point or there's bait that's coming up against this in the evening time. And then I'll make long throws away from the structure, just the opposite of what you would do, you know, keeping your boat away from the structure and casting up to it. So it's pretty common for me to do that. Uh, right now you can catch fish from the surface to 15 feet down by sitting 
right on top of the structure and making big long throws with a top water or a spoon and working it back to you. And that's a it's a really good trick, but it's not something you have a lot of confidence in, uh, and that can bug people. And then I'll throw one trick. There's one trick out that I think if people would do more of, they'd catch more fish, and that is any kind of buoy, uh, a mooring buoy, uh, no-wake zone buoy, uh, no-ski zone buoy, whatever the case might be. Any one of those buoys have a chain, and, and bass or walleye, either one, or trout even, that are suspended in the water column love to have something to relate to, and that chain might be going down to the bottom in 100 feet of water, and they will sit around those chains and uh, and that's another important place that you can catch them. And it also will allow you to establish a depth zone a little bit easier. So I'll throw a bait up against the chains, let it sink straight down the buoy line, and you can count it and figure out how much how deep the fish are. All right, my friend, we're almost out of time. Real quick, if you're going fishing next couple of days, we got some weather changes coming. Where would you go? Man, oh, man, I tell you what, all the lakes are kicking out a lot of fish right now. Normally, I would say here because, you know, I'm partial to this lake here at Horsetooth, but the Fullman Open's coming up this weekend. There's a lot of guys fishing here. I think I'd be hard-pressed to not get in the truck and drive down to Trinidad. Trinidad's fishing really, really well and uh, lots of quality of fish in there, and I'd probably run down there if it was me. And Trinidad also has a great variety of fish, too. Absolutely. Smallmouth, largemouth, walleyes, big numbers of all of the above. Um, you know, water levels drop in there. I'm sure there's a bunch of suspended fish there. I would start probably on the dam, but I'm not talking about fishing the rocks. I'm talking about getting out, you know, 30 yards off the dam face and, uh, and fishing the water column out there. That's probably all other things being equal. That's where I would start there. All right. People want more information to get a hold of you. It is Fishful Thinker, right, on social media and the, the website, right? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Fishful Thinker and also our YouTube channel. We'd appreciate it if folks would check that out. There's uh, two videos a week going up there and uh, more than 420-some videos there, so we'd love them to check it out. All right, my friend. We need to get on the water soon. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Chad. Uh, Thanks, Terry. Have a good day. You bet. Chad Lachance. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, I'm going to tell you whether my choice – remember now, you can still text in – to 303-713-1043. We're doing this just for fun today, but we may turn it into an event. The question of the day is, what do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? When we come back, I'll give you my answer. On Terry Wicksham Outdoors on 104.3, The Fan. Eagle, take it to the limit. Uh, do you, you know, Kyle, I hate this group, right? Uh, no, I don't think you do. No, you're right, I don't. Uh, to me, they're the all-time best group in the United States, the U.S. music. Of course, I'm an old guy, so I love their music. Hey, folks. Um, oh, Kyle. Yeah? You didn't tell the people. You're, we we got to ask you your fish question of the day. What do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? I know we asked you, but the people didn't hear. Yeah, I went with a fish that I landed, probably more memorable. But I do remember my dad catching a fish in it, breaking his pole at... Lake McConaughey, so I'll, I'll chalk that one up for, uh, you know, one that got away for my dad. All right, so we got one vote each, one for you landed and one for your dad lost. All right, have we're going to give you the fish, result. Have you ever had a fish break your pole? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've experienced uh, many, many different adventures when I've been fishing and so many blunders and mistakes, too. I'll cover some of those here in just a bit. Before I get to whether I like landed or lost, uh, I do want to give a report from the Colorado Angler up in Eagle. They said the Eagle below Walcott and the Colorado River in a lot of places 
they're either mandatory or voluntary closures at places, including a lot of the Colorado, they're not allowing any commercial guided fishing. So if you're going up to those places, first of all, bring a thermometer. If it's not closed, check the water temperature. If it gets above about 65 degrees, go somewhere else and fish because you're going to put too much strain on those fisheries. It's been a real tough year. Um, but if it's cooler than that, especially early in the day and there's no closure, go ahead and fish. Hopper droppers, caddis, mayfly are all working great. I, I love the hopper droppers. And the Arkansas River is fishing really well right now, so that might be an option for you. All right. As of right now, are lost and landed. We've got 40 who voted on the question of the day, what do you remember more, a fish you landed or a fish you lost? And 40 said lost and 47 said landed. Uh, I went with lost. And I'll tell you my story. I was with Mike Gordon, who owns the Good News River Lodge in Alaska. And this was my first attempt to go after giant tarpon. I wanted to catch tarpon on light tackle. So I had a bait casting reel with, I think, somewhere between 17 and 20 pound test on it. And uh, this was going to be my first attempt at tarpon. Karen just updated. It's now 42 lost and 47 landed. Anyway, um, Mike took, took us out. We were actually filming this for my television show. And we weren't out, I don't know, an hour. And a school of giant tarpon swam by. And Mike told me where to make the cast. I put the cast out there. And I still swear this fish was about 150 pounds. I know it was over 100, and I know you get excited and exaggerate. So I'm not going to say it was that, but, boy, it looked like it to me. And this tarpon inhaled my lure. It came out of the water not very far from the boat, and it was over six feet long, I think, and it came out over my head out of the water. So I hear I'm looking with 100 pounds of fish over my head tied to my 18-pound test line. It comes down and starts to run. I remember so vividly the line just flying off of that spool. I mean, I couldn't dare touch my thumb to it. It would have took the skin right off. And Mike started chasing the fish with a boat. I started gaining line. We fought that fish for about 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, the, the knot that Mike had tied on the leader failed. This was a 100-pound test leader. He felt so terrible, and the fish was gone. And I was sitting there virtually shaking from the excitement. It was so heart-pounding and incredible. And after that, tarpon became my nemesis fish for like three or four years. I had to go several more times, hook up and lose, I don't know how many more tarpon, before I finally broke the jinx and caught one. I will always remember that fish. But I'm going to vote for uh, loss because of the, the memory that fish created. But I've also caught some memorable fish I've landed. And I was... Uh, I've been texting back and forth with a lot of people in the industry, Steve Panaz, Jimmy Houston, Al Linder, the last couple of days. And I think most, for the most part, it comes down to loss, except for Jimmy, because he said he never lost a fish, which we take with a little grain of salt. So anyway, that's the results. Thanks for taking part in that. We will do this again. Before we wrap it up, our guys are coming on here after us for the pregame for the Broncos today. And I have a question for them, so I hope they're listening. And this is my take on things, and they're obviously better experts than I am. But when I look back at Teddy Bridgewater's history and his performance in training camp, it looks to me like he's almost as turnover-prone as Drew Locke is. 
Teddy turns the ball over a lot. He fumbles it a lot. He throws a lot of interceptions. It's not just now. He always has. And so if that's the reason for not playing Drew, but Drew has more upside, I don't understand that. But the real question I have, when both these guys come to the line, Teddy seems like a smart, calm quarterback. One of the big keys of success of a play is when you come to the line, do you change the protection or even the call? What do you see out there? What are your pre-snap reads? And I would think that Teddy would be better at that than Drew because he's got more experience. But I'd like the guys when they come up to answer that, and I'll listen it after they come up because I think that's going to be really important. Hey, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for participating in the contest. Thanks for joining us. We're back on the fan again. We were gone for a couple weeks over to ESPN. Uh, Almost every Saturday you can find us here from 9 to 11. Follow us on Facebook. I'm going to work up a Facebook post on this lost and landed question and give you some of the comments and things we got. I think it was a lot of fun. Follow us on Facebook. Follow our YouTube channel, Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Tune in every Saturday, 9 to 11. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour and more sports on 104.3 The Fan.